It's good to be back with you all this evening. See many familiar faces out there and also some, some new ones that I don't know. I'm going to be glad to meet you all after the service. But as we look in the Word this evening, I want you to all turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians chapter 3. We're going to talk this evening about citizenship. What is citizenship? What it means? How it applies to us? And before we go into what the scriptures has to say about it, I want us to think about how we view citizenship. How we view who we are as American citizens. So as we think about this, this is July. We've gone through a lot of things recently in the last few weeks. We think about every year Independence Day. We think about more than just barbecue and potato salad. But we think about things like liberty. We think about the amazing privilege that God has given us to live in this nation. And then maybe some of us, if we're more thoughtful, we we ponder the blessings that God has given us with having American citizenship. Things like the ability to vote, the ability to have a voice in our government, the ability of maybe due process of law under the U.S. Constitution. It's, we're protected from being sent out of the country. We are, have citizenship extended to our children. We have you know, protection abroad when we travel. We are represented at embassies. All of these things we have as part of our citizenship of the United States. That's one element of citizenship. But as we look at the word this evening, I want to see not just that element. The, these are your privileges. These are your rights under citizenship. There's also another part of citizenship, and it's, it's part of that identity you have, part of the, who you are because you are a citizen. And American citizens, we have this. We have an identity. You just go around the world and ask the rest of the world, what do you think of Americans? And you will probably hear an earful of what they think your identity is. Um, Pew Research did some uh, study internationally, and they said the number one characteristic people think of when they think of Americans. Number one was optimistic. Hey, that's, that's pretty good. And another one, hardworking. Which I don't know what part of America they were looking at, but many of them, I guess they think, were hardworking, were enterprising. And the third thing was is they think we're arrogant. I said, yeah, that's, that's, that's probably pretty accurate. Also, they think we're greedy, all about the money. They think that we're violent is another one, probably due to them watching too much uh, television, American television. Anyway, but there's, a, there's another element that I've seen when I traveled outside the United States. So we went with my church. We went in 2017 on a mission trip to our missionaries, Dan and Lynn Sehested. I think you all are familiar with their ministry in Romania. So we went over to Romania, and while we were there, we stayed in a six-story tall hotel. And most of the team was on the fourth, fifth, and sixth stories. And of course, there was no elevator. So we got our exercise walking up the stairs, all six stories. You made sure you only walked up once a day. So you, if you forgot something, you waited till the next day to get it. Well, one day I was walking into the hotel with one of the Christians who was from the church there, and I asked him, well, so what do you think of Americans? Like, what, what, what makes you think of, 
what do you think of when you think of Americans? How do you know someone's American, not just a European that dresses funny? And they said, he goes, they're loud. And I thought, surely that's not us. I mean, we've been respectful. We've been quiet in the church, in the hotel. You know, we're not those people who uh, play loud music and do jumping jacks on the floor all night. And so we're thinking, I'm, I'm thinking this is good. So I start walking up the stairs with him to our sixth, sixth floor. And I hear one of our team at the level four, hollering up the stairs to the level six. Hey, I forgot something up there. Can you grab it for me? And I thought, that's exactly what he was talking about. We're very loud. So we have this two parts. We have, this is our identity, what people think of us, how we act. These are kind of our traits. And over here on this side, we have, this is the privileges we have, the responsibilities we have, the, I guess, legal protections that we have. And I want to think about both of those elements as we approach the scriptures this evening. We're going to start reading in Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Philippians 3, 17. It says in verse 17, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so, as ye have us for an example. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation, and we'll come back to that word, our conversation, that's the word citizenship, our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Let's go to the Lord now and ask him for his help as we look in his word this evening. Dear Lord, as we look at your word to see what you have to say about our citizenship in heaven, what our responsibilities are, how our lives should look, what our conduct should be, how we should be known as children of you. I pray that we would see in your word as a mirror how our lives are and that we should conform ourselves to your standard that you have laid out for us in your word. I pray that you'd be with each of us tonight and also the children's ministries going on now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see in this passage about what is citizenship. And before we can really know exactly what Paul's talking about in this passage, we need to do just a quick survey to find out where he is in, in this chapter. So we're not going to go back too far. We're just going to go back to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 3, just give a quick summary. He's talking about a standard of living that has characterized his life. And he wants to make a contrast between himself, Paul, and these false believers, these, the members of the concision, he says in verse 2. He says in verse 3 that they're not the people who follow works for salvation. No, they're the ones who worship God in the spirit, in verse 3. He says, you know, if I had followed works of the law, if that was my rule, that was my conduct, then I would be the best person of all to actually succeed at following God's law. And he lists out all of his qualifications, just a quick summary of them. He says, I was born in an obedient Jewish home. He says that 
there, circumcised the eighth day. He was an Israelite by blood. He could trace his lineage through Benjamin. He was a Hebrew par excellence, meaning a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Uh, The Bible uses this in other places, speaking of Christ or speaking of God. He's the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. Well, Paul uses the same thing. He says, I am a Hebrew of all the Hebrews. I'm the one. I'm an example of the, the highest class. He's also a theological conservative, a Pharisee. He was zealous for the faith, or Judaism, when it says he was a uh, persecuting the church. And he's also blameless before the law. But yet, all of these things he lists out, he says, none of these are good enough to make me a citizen of heaven. All of these things, they're nothing before Christ. Salvation can't be found in any of these things. And he goes and says it explicitly in verse 9. He says, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of or in Christ, the the righteousness which is of God by faith. So he wants to make this contrast. I didn't become a citizen of heaven because of who I am. I only did that because I had the righteousness of Christ. And he moves on to the next section, and he says, you know, here in verse 10, what he's doing now, now that he's become a citizen of heaven through salvation, through the righteousness of Christ, he is striving to know God, to be conformed to Christ. He says in verse 12 that he's not arrived. It's like a race. He hasn't attained. He's not perfect, but he he follows after. He's trying to get there. That's his goal in life. That's where he's headed for. And then right, he says right before our passage that we'll look at this evening, in verse 16, says, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us, by this, excuse me, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. What he's saying here is, I need to go back one verse, excuse me, let's read 15. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. So this, this mindset of pressing towards the goal of Christ-likeness. He says, each of us, we need to live according to this rule. We need to mind the same thing. This should be our goal. This should be our standard. So on that note, Paul admonishes the Philippians in our passage that we're looking at this evening. He tells the Philippians, you need to reject the self-serving, earthly-minded life and live as citizens of heaven, where the Savior will come and transform you to live. So in one quick sentence, we can summarize this passage as saying, live as citizens of heaven, not of the earth. Live as citizens of heaven, not of the earth. Paul lists a couple ways that we can be a true citizen of heaven, not just in these are the things Christ gives us, that part of citizenship, But also, this is what our identity should be. This is how we should live. This is what we should look like. So the first thing that Paul lists here in verse 17 is he wants to give you some good examples and some bad examples. He starts off with a good one. He said, brethren, be followers thereof of me and mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. So before he goes in, he talks about this is don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. He says, you know what, there are people that you should look to. There are people that you should see in your life that are 
clearly following the way of the cross. They are living in conformity to this rule, this standard of Christ-likeness. And he says the first example is my life, Paul's life. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. This was the model and example. See, Paul devoted himself, as he's just said throughout the previous part of this chapter, he's devoted himself to consistently following Christ. It's a race. He's enduring on it. He is headed that direction, and you are to follow him. As he runs and matures in his Christian life, these believers in Philippi, they needed to follow that as well. Live by the same mindset and follow that same standard that Paul was setting. It was a real-life example to them of what truly pursuing Christ looked like. It was in the life of Paul. And Paul, he's trying to make this, as we'll go through these next few verses, he's trying to make this contrast between what's good and what's bad. And he's saying here, when he uses this word followers, be followers, it's the word imitators, the word imitation. Followers, you are, as he heads down the road, as he walks, you are to follow right in his footsteps. You are to follow right behind him. You are to imitate him as he follows Christ. You imitate him. And the way, the way it's structured here in the passive voice, it sounds like that this is almost like a title. It's, oh, they're the imitators. Just like we see in Acts where they're called, kind of pejoratively, they're called Oh, those Christians, those Christ followers. This is almost another way here. We could be called the imitators, the imitators of Christ. We're the followers of Christ. And that's what we should be like. Now, we say, what's an imitator? What's a follower? Uh, We have these ideas in mind. um, But we can look a lot closer to our own lives to see what a follower is. If anyone has any young children that they have and interaction with, whether that's your own kids, grandkids, or nieces and nephews like me, they show how a child can imitate. They do exactly what you do. I was sitting one day with my niece. She lives in Illinois. And she was about three years old at the time. So she was sitting next to me. And when they're about three years old and they're bored, pretty much you could just pull up your phone and show them the app screen and they'd be content as long as you moved it back and forth several times. So I pull up my photos, and I'm just scrolling through, scrolling through, and she's just sitting there watching, keeping her occupied. And she eventually got bored of me just going through pictures of, you know, things I saw on Amazon that I need to buy and just random photos of random things. And she's like, I'm tired of that. I'm like, okay. So I open up the camera. She looks at that selfie camera, and she starts doing stuff. And I start making faces at her in the selfie camera. It's kind of interesting to see what your own face looks like when you're actually making those faces. And so we're just looking back and forth, and you're just going away. And I noticed after a couple seconds that every time I did something, she would do something too. So I started, you know, watching it. You know, I'd scrunch up my nose, and she'd scrunch up her nose. I'd wiggle an ear, and she'd try, end up wiggling her whole head, you know. I'd do funny things with my, funny things with my face. She'd do the exact same thing. She wanted to look just like me. I've got some of those pictures. It's, it's kind of cool. They'll look back and see, see them now. But her as a three-year-old, she wanted to be just like her Uncle Sam. And so she saw, oh, he made that goofy face. I'll make that goofy face too. She, she saw the example, the standard, 
in the selfie camera, and she said, oh, I can do that too. And she would move her face until it was similar to what I was doing. And that's the same way us today. We have the mirror, the selfie camera, to be, I guess, a little trite. Um, we have the mirror of God's word. We can see how Paul lived, and we're to be his imitator. We can see our own lives and say, okay, how can I conform myself into this example? And you can see if you match up as you go through the word of God. And so that's how we should live. And this is a consistent theme. It's not just Philippians. First Corinthians, Paul says the same thing. Wherefore I beseech you, be followers of me. He says that in chapter 4. In chapter 11, he says this again. This is one we're all probably pretty familiar with. Be ye followers of me, even as I am also of Christ. So that's the first example, Paul, and the example in Scripture. We can see his life, we can see his thinking, we can see what he does, his decision-making process, all of that, how he prays, all of that's available. It's recorded here in Scripture. But Paul moves on from that. He says, you know what, the only example is not just someone who lived 1,000, 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, depending where you, when you live in church history. There's more examples than that. He moves on in 17, he says, mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. So who are we supposed to mark? We're supposed to mark those who have the pattern of Christ-likeness, that rule, that standard. We're to follow them. And then we are, in turn, to be examples to others. So it's this trickle-down effect. Paul, he has given an example. Christ has given an example. We're to look at other people who are given examples. We're to conform ourselves to them, and we're to be examples ourselves. So it's all of this in 1 Thessalonians 1, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. He's calling out the Thessalonian church. They were all examples. So when we look about that in our lives, we see, okay, Paul's an example. There's examples in Scripture. But we really need to look at our own lives and say, It's not just an example of someone far away in the past that we can read about. There's examples of people who follow Christ that we know of, people that we know personally. Maybe that be, in my case, my parents. They followed Christ. Maybe it's an older sibling. I know older siblings get a bad rap. I understand why. I have six of them. And... But they were examples to me in some of the choices they made and how I should live my life. You know, there's people, there's more obvious choices people think about, maybe your pastor or church leaders. But there's also people in recent history, church people of the past, Christian leaders of the past, godly friends. All of these people, Paul says, we need to look out for those people who have the pattern of Christ-likeness and mark them, select them. Make sure we make note of them, mark them, and say, this is the example we ought to follow. All right? So we have the example of of good people. We have Paul. We have the example in the scriptures. We have the example of people who follow Christ throughout our lives, that we can compare their lives with scripture and say, yes, they're people we should follow their example. After we have this now, Paul moves on from the good example to tell you a little bit about the bad example. It says in verse 18, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. 
whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. So here is this, this contrast. If such a good example, one that's to be held up and honored, one that's to be followed. And then we move to a serious note. This is something that's not, it's not light, it's not lightly, it's not taken lightly, excuse me, in, in Paul's viewpoint. This is something he's warned them about repeatedly. And not just repeatedly. He didn't just go on about this. No, it was enough to bring emotion. He had, he had tears. He was brought to tears over this. He pleaded with them on many occasions. Watch out for these enemies. Those who reject Christ, they should be identified as well as the people who, who have the pattern of Christ-likeness. So just like we were selecting, oh, there's the good examples, we need to actively select those are the bad examples. Don't follow them. And Paul says, this is not a new occurrence to the Philippians. Paul's reminded them about this repeatedly. Um, he says, he warns about some other false teachers in the book as well. And he says, these are, these are people that you must stay away from. Their error is serious. Now, there, there's two different views here on who these people are. So I'll just give a brief summary of them because either... either understanding of it, it's very close in how we apply it to ourselves today. The first example is this is the same people he was talking about above with the circumcision, i.e., those are people who they don't profess Christ. They say, well, here is, here is I'll take Christ and I'll add the works of the law. It's similar to what we see in Galatians, the Judaizers, um, you have to follow the law in addition to Christ to be a believer. These could be the people he, he was selecting here, people that are saying the works of the law are important as well for salvation. And we know that's not the case. It's only through the righteousness of Christ. But as we read through some of these traits, you know, their, their end is destruction. Well, yeah, people who, who don't believe the gospel by faith, by grace alone, they are headed for destruction. They are not believers. Um, and, but then there's the other side. The other view is these are people who are, they, they claim Christ. And they, they say it's only by Christ alone. But yet they turn and say, well, it was Christ alone here. And now I can basically do whatever I want because I, I checked my box. I, I filled the, the, the Christ box. I made my profession and now I move on. I'm going on to the life that I want to live. I'm going on to a life without restraint, without the law. I'm going to live just like an unbeliever. And, and Paul could be even referring to both types of people like this. We see examples of it in some of his other writings. So he could be talking about these are people who they profess some measure of Christ, whether that is completely actually having a genuine salvation testimony, and yet at the same time while professing some measure of Christ, they go beyond that and say, well, it's uh, really not important to live like Christ. I can kind of serve myself and live however I want. And Paul highlights that first characteristic about them. He says, they're the enemies of the cross of Christ. We talked about that. What's going to happen to them? Verse 19, their end is destruction. That's the result. It's the goal. It's where they're headed. They have direction. They may not be there yet. You may not see all of that fruit in their life, but that's where they're headed. Their goal 
is towards destruction. They reject the cross, and therefore they will be condemned for their sin. Another trait is people who follow their own desires, says whose God is their belly. It's people who set themselves up, maybe set their own lusts up as their God. This this stomach here, this belly, it's used as a metaphor in several other places in Scripture for that seat of desires. It's that the place where your decisions are made. This is probably a popular Christmas song. Uh, You say, I love you from the bottom of my heart. I will not give you a rendition of that song tonight. But that same idea is saying, this is the innermost part of me. This is who I really am. And I'm going to love you with that. In this passage, he says, they take that innermost part of their own desires, their own wants, their own needs, and that's their God. Anything their desires want, that's what they'll do. That's what they'll follow. And an uh, example of this is in Romans 16. It says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the sinful. The simple, excuse me. He uses this word of their appetites. And the context there is pretty similar. It's people who cause divisions in the church. It's false teachers. It's people who are serving their own belly. Now, it's possible that this serving their own belly could be what you think of as you know, serving food and, and heathen feasts, which were very common in the culture at the time. But the application is definitely broader than that. It definitely goes to all, all matters of our basic human desires. Um, for example, take our thinking. We, we indulge in whatever fantasies or entertainment that fulfills our own desires. And we don't take those choices into consideration. We are unsatisfied, perhaps, with the life God has given us. And we want the best of everyone else's life. And Philippians, he talks about thinking here in the next chapter. You can look over there in, in chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true... Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, pure, lovely, good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So he addresses exactly one element of following your own desires. And there's, there's many other examples and applications to this that you all know about, how you, own, you each person, follows their own desires sometimes over the desires of God. That's something we must watch out for. And there's another trait, though, we must watch out for. And it's the glorification of things that are shameful. Their glory is in their shame. These people, they take their old ways, the old ways of the flesh, and they say, That's, I have the Christian liberty to do that. Or, this is my freedom in Christ. And Paul ex- addresses this in Romans 6. God forbid that you should do continue to sin just because God has grace and forgives your sins. And we should live as new creatures in Christ, as Second Corinthians says. But there's one last characteristic of these false professors. And that characteristic is they're earthly minded. See that at the end of verse 19? Who mind earthly things. And this comes from a focus of life 
on earth. So all these people live for, they're just the pleasures that they could have in their own life. They're the experiences they could have. They could, it's what can I do while I'm here on earth? It's the whole live life to the fullest extent while I'm living here on earth. And I think sometimes that this mentality sometimes comes over a little bit into our Christian thinking. We think about, oh, it's my life to live, so let's just see. I, I, I did, as long as I'm religious and I, I serve God enough, I can you know, do whatever I want with the blessings God has given me. I can, um, with my life, it's just mine to spend at my pleasure, at my discretion. It's very earthly-minded. And Romans 8 talks about people who live in the flesh. It says the people who live in the flesh, they are going to do those things according to the flesh. They're going to live earthly-minded. It says here in in verse 5 of Romans 8, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally-minded is death, but to be spiritually-minded is life and peace. So it's important for us to think about this. We're not to live as people who are earthly-minded. We're supposed to live according to that pattern, that rule of following Christ. That's to be our number one goal. It's not to be what we can do with our own lives. So we need to evaluate our own focus. Where is our focus at? Is our focus on our own lives? Is it on our job, our family, our future, our goals, and all of those things are good. But should our lives be focused on this is just the goal I want out of my life or this is how I want my family to be or this is the life I've always dreamed of or do you want to have a life focused on this is what God wants me to be, this is how I can serve God with my life, this is how I can use the blessings and resources God has given me to serve him. And Paul moves on from this, from the good examples to the bad examples, and he now says, why are we doing this? Why should you live according to this rule, this high bar of Christ's likeness? The reason is there in verse 24, because our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In contrast to those who reject and oppose the cross of Christ, their end, their goal is destruction. Our end, our goal, is in heaven. We're just strangers here on this earth. Now, this word here is translated conversation, and it's only used once in the New Testament. There's some other cognates of it um, or closely related words, but there's a reference here to some element of Roman law. In this passage. See, Philippi, it was a colony separate from the country of Italy, or the country of Rome, if you want to put it that way. It wasn't part of the the continental Rome. It was separate over in the Greece area. And yet, it was a colony. So it had the same rights, privileges, and responsibilities as a Roman city. So everyone who lived in Philippi was Roman citizens, They had the authority, they had the privileges, the citizenship, as we've been talking about, the citizenship as if they were in Rome, but yet they weren't in Rome. 
And so Paul is using a very similar word here. He says, okay, just like you're from Philippi, you are living in this colony, separate from the homeland, if you want to put it that way, separate from Rome, yet you have all the rights, privileges, responsibilities of a Roman citizen. You live and act according to Roman law, and you conduct yourself as a Roman. He says, I want you to think the same way about you being a citizen of heaven. We're not in heaven. Heaven's the homeland. It's our home. We don't live there now, but yet we have the same rights, responsibilities, and we are governed under the same law as if we were in heaven. We are citizens of heaven, so act like citizens of heaven. And this, this, is, this translation here, conversation, in several other translations, it's things like um, your citizenship or your commonwealth or something under that line. And this uh, translation of conversation, it's capturing the idea of not just live like a citizen, but, or not just you are a citizen, but it's live like a citizen. So conversation or lifestyle, it's an emphasis on this is what your lifestyle should look like because you are a citizen. You actually have some actionable decisions in your life because you are a citizen. So just like Philippi was a colony of Romans, according to Roman law, we are a colony, we are pilgrims, of heaven, separate from heaven, but still living under Christ's law. We are following his commands, and we are pledging our allegiance unto him. So what do, what do you citizens of heaven do? Well, it says right there in verse 20, we look for the Savior. We look to heaven for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The leader of, our, of us, the citizens of heaven, it's Jesus Christ. We're to be following his example. We're to be living according to his rules. And we should be worshiping him. Now, Paul's actually continuing with this metaphor. See, he started talking about citizenship and talking about how the Philippi and their rules, how it's, it's a comparison to us being a citizen of heaven. But he uses another term here. He uses the word savior, which was actually a term that's, that was used outside of just you know, religious texts. It's not just he was the savior who cleansed them from their sin. This word soter, it's a word that's used in many secular Greek contexts. It's used of people. And I'll give you an example. Ptolemy the first, he lived from 323 to 285 BC, so two or three centuries before Christ. He was one of Alexander of the Great's generals. So I won't give you a history lesson. So you just have Alexander the Great. When he dies, after he conquers the large part of the known world at the time, he divides his kingdom up into four. One of them was Ptolemy I. And Ptolemy I, he took, he took a name. He was Ptolemy I Soter. He was the savior. And this was a title that he used for himself of extraordinary esteem. He was the savior. Now, the Caesars, they took up on this. They took this and they said, oh, that's a, that's a great idea. So they, they um, ascribed Soter to themselves, Savior to themselves, as part of how they, they deified the Caesars, so how they raised the Caesars up to be the level of God. So you call me Lord, call me Savior. And so when Paul uses these words in the context of citizenship, 
And now he says, Savior. So now he didn't just say, you're living, you, you know you're Philippians living in a colony from Rome. Well, now I'm going to tell you you're Christians living in a colony, so to speak, from heaven. But guess what? While you're in Philippi, you're serving a soter, a Savior, the Caesar. But I'm going to tell you a Savior that is actually the Savior. And he is your new ruler in heaven. That is Jesus Christ. So when he uses these words, he's saying, you know what? Caesar claims to be Savior, but he's not really the Savior. There is the Savior, the one Savior in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he truly has the power. We need to ask ourselves, are we living in submission to Christ as Lord? And do we understand this responsibility? The Philippians would have understood the responsibility they had to Caesar. But do we understand the responsibility we have to our Savior? It goes on here in the last verse, just summarizing here at the end of the, the passage. He says, this Savior, he gives him demonstration of his power. He says, he's more powerful than Caesar. Caesar may be able to destroy life. Caesar may be able to kill people, conquer nations. But he won't be able to do what Jesus Christ can do. Jesus Christ can change our vile or our mortal bodies that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. This is the transformation that Christ gives to us. It says when we're saved in Ephesians, it says that we were given, we were raised up together with Christ and made to sit together in heavenly places with him. We're given this this new position, this new life, this future prospect of resurrection when he returns. We have life forever with him in heaven. These things can never be done by some sovereign on earth. They can only be done by the all-powerful God. And he's the one we ought to serve. So one more element that Paul wants to bring out, though. He says, not only will he take our bodies and resurrect them, he's going to fashion them like his glorious bodies, he's going to do it according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. He says, the power I have over all the nations, the power I have over all the world, the power I have over the elements that he has from creation, that same power can work in your life. That same power is available to you to transform you into the likeness of his son. He is able. I know we sing that song in Sunday school, he's able, he's able, I know he's able. I know my Lord is able to carry me through. We think about all that, he's able, he's able. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. He's able even to subdue all things unto himself. He has power over the world. He can transform us into his glory. And because of that, we must respond to him in a way that Paul talks about right here in the book of Philippians. You can turn in your Bibles one page back to Philippians chapter 2 in verse 9. We see the exaltation of Jesus says in verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if you're here tonight and you have not confessed that Jesus Christ is your Lord, that you have not bowed your knee before him and begged him to save you from your sins because you were completely unable to do so yourself. Tonight is the night to do so. But if you're a believer, you've bowed your knee to him in salvation. You've confessed him as Lord. Are you living like it? Does your life, is it in accordance with him? Are you following the example of Paul that he's given you? Are you following the examples of the other godly believers you know in your life? That's how you ought to live on this earth. You must live according to that pattern. The pattern, the standard of Christ's likeness. You must live as a citizen of heaven. If I can ask you a few questions this evening. I can ask you, are you earthly minded? Is that what you think about? Think about where where I can go in my life, the, the things I can achieve, the, the places I want to be? Or do you think about how you can serve your master, the Lord Jesus? Are you following the examples of Christ's likeness that God has given you? Are you a citizen of heaven? Christ has the power to transform us. We're not there. None of us are there. If you're a citizen of heaven, you're still on this earth. You're still attempting to follow Christ's likeness and live according to that rule. And God will empower you. One final admonition this evening. If you're a citizen of heaven, live like it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that we can come into your house this evening and break open the word of life and read from its pages how we ought to conform our lives into accordance with your divine plan, your divine will, and your divine power. I pray that you would help each of us to live as citizens of heaven, to live our life to follow you, to live a life that's not earthly-minded, that's not following our own desires, but are living our lives according to your will and your way. I pray that you'd be with each of us as we go home this evening, that you thank you and thank you for this time we've had in your house. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Samuel. Uh, before you dismiss, let's put some feet to those thoughts. And what I'd love for you to do is have a heavenly minded conversation with somebody before you leave. Ask them this question What is or what do you enjoy? about being a citizen of heaven. What do you enjoy about being a citizen from heaven? Let's spend some time before you guys head out through the door. Just find somebody and have a heavenly-minded conversation with them as we apply what we learned tonight. You guys are dismissed. Thank you for joining us. Mm -hmm.